Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Jared. And welcome to the Fixate and Binge podcast, where we discuss our fixation with movies and television. And those we consider absolutely binge-worthy right now. Okay, uh, good afternoon or good morning or good evening, wherever everyone is when they're listening to this. Welcome back to the Fixate and Binge podcast. I'm your host, or co-host rather, uh, Joe, and my uh, co-pilot and better half, Jared, is here. What's uh, up, how are you doing? Joe? Yeah. What is up indeed? Um, we are coming to our listeners remotely. Um, we're remotely, at least. Uh, Jared and I haven't been in the same room in going on two weeks now, yeah, right? Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah, I'm still recovering a little bit from the after effects of COVID. My wife has got full blown COVID. So, um, how about the kids? If it, um, my son has got a fever. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, um, this is, uh, kind of wending its way like the angel of death. I shouldn't say angel of death. That's very morbid. I, we should angel of pain, angel of misery, a- a- angel of pain, angel of complaining is, <laughs> is kind of, uh, in our home, in our home. And, uh, I guess driving us all a little nuts. We're starting yeah. to get a little stir crazy. We'd like to go out. We'd like to start doing things. So eventually yeah. that'll happen. Well, until then, you just have to endure and it sucks. But that is the reality. And you've been around this thing two times now? Twice. Yeah, it sucks. It's just miserable. It is. You just get sick. You can't see <laughs> anybody because you're highly contagious. And it's, you know, you don't know how it's going to hit other people. So can't go out, can't have people over. So the best we can do is get online and talk about some movies together. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a great idea. So yeah, we have a couple fresh new movies to talk about that I'm pretty excited about. One of them, You People, was number one in Netflix, at least from the beginning, from the time it was first released, and I think it's still, I think it's still in one of those top categories and then we're going to talk about the menu which was just released uh did you see the menu in the theater or did you see it at home no i didn't get a chance to see it in the theaters i think um that came out i want to say around thanksgiving time okay so it was around the holidays and yeah you know you're forgiven if you'd miss some of these films you've got shopping and family and yeah you know all sorts of other things tons of things yeah tons of things and then we were really, I was really surprised to see it pop up on HBO Max. So I was like, oh, I don't have to pay for it now. <laughs> Perfect. Should we just dive <laughs> yeah. into that one? We can. I did write a review for it. Oh, did you? Okay. Maybe we should just come out right off the bat and just say, if you haven't seen it and you don't want to hear any more about it, listen no further. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just said that. Let's, let's do that. So okay. okay, let this be the warning to you. If you, if you have not seen these movies, you people and the menu, there yes. will be spoilers. I promise. Yes. Very much spoilers indeed. So Okay. Well, let's start with your um, review. I, I always enjoy your review. So lay it on us. Oh, you're, you're too nice. Okay. So for anyone that has seen the menu, um, I mean, I'm not spoiling everything in the review. I mean, there's no. still discoveries to be made. And much of what's in this review, I think, was revealed in the trailer if you if you still haven't seen the menu and it's on HBO Max, I don't think I ruin the whole film by telling you this. Okay, but here it is. 
Watching the menu feels more like observing the final judgment of flawed, damned people. Twelve guests, a peculiar number in Christian theology, gather at an exclusive island which is home to one of the world's finest restaurants for the hoi polloi, gastronomes with deep pockets and pretentious taste buds. There are charlatans, dilettantes, imposters, and snobs who belly up to the trough to be served the finest in haute cuisine by enigmatic and eccentric chef Slowick, played by Rafe Fiennes, who chews the scenery with all the warmth and smiling menace reminiscent of the late Christopher Lee's Lord Summer Isle in The Wicker Man, a film with several parallels to this movie. If Thomas Aquinas had written the script, no one would be surprised to find the character so obviously guilty of each of the seven deadly sins, with the judge, jury, and executioner being Chef Slowick, who, along with his dog-like obedient sous chefs, serve up dish after dish of irony. The fly in the proverbial soup is played by Anya Taylor-Joy's Margot, who was not originally on the guest list, which frustrates the precise and calculating Chef Slowick, who had meticulously planned every detail of the evening. There is a dark undercurrent of humor that runs throughout the entire film, with the central premise appearing to say, Eat the rich, bon appetit. <laughs> a dish best served cold? I'm all out of cooking idioms and metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. See, one thing I, I really enjoy about your reviews is that you use words that I either haven't heard of or haven't heard of in a very long time. So you're, you're expanding my vocabulary all the time. I appreciate that. I'm so glad my pretentious, pretentious, snobby <laughs> reviews. Hey, you went to school in England. So, you know, the old country. How, how can you not be? Maybe. Yeah, maybe I did expand my vocabulary. I, I I tend to wax a little too loquacious sometimes with the See, vernacular. There you so go. Loquacious. Boom. Yeah. Dropping the words. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> so what did I I uh, I once had somebody uh, in England after I was in a play? They came up to me and they said, "Good job, mate. I like the cut of your jib." <laughs> <laughs> what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Exactly. I don't know what that means. Okay, whatever. Um, I like the cut of your jib. You, you <laughs> okay, got some man, approval. Thanks. High approval rating yeah, that time. I I, yeah. Oh, man. So what did you think of the menu? All right, the menu. The menu. It was baffling. It, it, immediately okay. intriguing, but ultimately baffling to me. And I'm looking forward to get, hearing your your perspective on things uh, that you mentioned the fly in the in the soup or whatever the fly in the an ointment or a fly in the soup is the Margot character Anya Taylor Joy. She okay. First of all, just kind of a quick character roundup here. You've got f foodies like self avowed foodies who are. They practically worship at the feet of chefs, famous chefs, well-known chefs. Yeah. And then you've got snobs like the reviewer that was in there just thinks that she is the just the shit and can literally has made or broken various chefs' careers and restaurants with just her, her criticism or praise. And then you've got kind of the the rich assholes that, have nothing better to do with their time or money than to just do this high profile food experience. And you've got, uh, let's see what else you've got just more, just more rich people, which 
I'm not against rich people, and I'm not sure that this movie is even against rich people. I think what it's about is, well, we'll go into that in a minute. Okay. So the Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Margot, you mentioned she was not on the list. She wasn't on the list. And that immediately annoys the chef and his people. And so you can see this wrestle in the chef's mind where he doesn't know how to handle Margot. He doesn't know how to engage with her, how to really ultimately uh, subdue her. He doesn't know who she is and he doesn't know what to do with her. And that was that was an interesting power dynamic pull, uh, push and pull back and forth throughout the whole movie. This is definitely not one of those straightforward films, I don't think. It's, it's not like, oh yeah, this is what this is about. It's not real cut and dry. You can pull all kinds of themes. You can pull all kinds of meanings out of it. Depends where you're coming right. from. Like like anything else, but it's not real clear. I didn't feel it was. Yeah, and I kind of like that some films leave things open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah. They, you, are, you are not necessarily given a literal explanation of what the film is about. And I like how some directors will play coy, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, what, what was that symbolizing? What was that about? It's like, hmm, I'm not going to say. I'm yeah. going to just let you... I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm not going to tell you you're right. That's why I always feel a little bit disappointed that, if I'm not mistaken, Orson Welles was kind of cornered and hectored to explain, what's the meaning of Rosebud? What is the meaning of Rosebud? It's the first thing we hear at the beginning of Citizen Kane. What does it mean? And then he explains it, and the cat's out of the bag a little bit, and it's like, oh, okay. And now everybody doesn't even have to watch the whole film. They just know what it's about. Oh, Rosebud, yeah, it's about his innocence. It was the name of his sled. It was about child. Okay. And so I kind of like that some directors pull back and Mm -hmm. and say, no, you know, what do you think it means? And and I'm not going to tell you, oh, that's interesting that you took that away from it. And then inside the director's head, he's thinking, I wasn't going in that direction, but if that's what it means to you, Awesome. What do you make of that, Joe? Because you know, as a you've directed productions, plays. Now, granted, you uh, directed plays that had been written hundreds of years ago, performed many, many, probably thousands of times throughout history. So, I don't know how much leeway you can have with a, a Shakespearean play, but you, the director, has the opportunity to interpret and present things in slightly different ways. Is that correct? Of course, yeah, especially when you're working with content that's very, very old, like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of interpret the way you want. I mean, l- look at things that are now in the, the I don't even know what you would call it. They, they uh, like A.L. M- uh, Milne's uh, Winnie the Pooh. They've got a Winnie the Pooh movie. It's a horror movie. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen ads for this. Isn't this ridiculous? It's yeah. so ridiculous it might need to be seen. But because of... Um, What's it called copy, again? It's like know, buckets it's not, of blood or honey yeah, buckets of blood or something bu- like that something like that yeah and so <laughs> now we've got we have to see it now. that nobody wants. yeah we have to see it and even though nobody asked for it, oh i want to see a new take on winnie the pooh and yeah. i want to see him being a axe murderer or whatever and there's a bambi one coming out too apparently yeah and so this stuff is in the public public domain i think public domain that's what it is yeah. when it reaches a certain period of time you can you can impose a different interpretation or a different take on it. I saw a production of Macbeth, for example. Now, Macbeth is a Scottish play, right? But this production set it in Salem, Massachusetts. That's interesting. The witches were dressed like Puritans. Huh. And they were just in the forest with a cauldron. 
And then they would put on their little pilgrim hats and the dresses and then mix with the rest of the townspeople. And so the witches were among the people. Interesting. I, I saw a production of The Tempest with uh, Patrick Stewart. What, and it's, you know, when we think of the, the Tempest, oh, it's a tropical island. And there's all these references to tropical island, to flora and fauna. They decided to set it in Antarctica. <laughs> What? In the early 1900s. And so all these references to flora and fauna, the cast said them sarcastically. Ah. Oh, yes. Okay. Look at all the flora and the fauna and the, and the leaves and the trees. And then they were like, smirk, smirk, yeah. wink, wink. And then there was Nothing. chuckles in the audience. I was like, that's interesting. Sometimes if we want to look at things and do a literal interpretation, we can very quickly make that thing we make it very boring and and i i kind of like that people will take things directors will take things and say you might think i mean this with it but there's actually multiple layers mm -hmm. to this or hidden meanings and what i'm really trying to say is this do directors do you think they relish the ability of their art to be pulled in multiple different directions do you think they maybe sometimes take offense by some of the directions people may take it i would think that most directors i mean we had chris on here for example chris cowden and and he was talking about some people for example loved the final scene in the fast food restaurant with his wife mm -hmm. that was my favorite scene and, yeah. and when at the time he's making it was like i didn't really think people would take it that way or, or that's true or he you know it, people really grabbed onto that because of personal experience yeah and i i think I think more often than not, directors may not always know that they're making something that's going to be interpreted differently and, and, and looked over and pondered and picked at and, and discussed ad nauseum. I think directors make things, they go, you know, when it was on the page, I didn't really look at it quite like that. Like the Coen brothers, I don't think could have possibly imagined that dudism would become a religion and that there would be festivals. <laughs> Certainly not. That that would be prophetic for them to predict something like that. The the menu is certainly open to interpretation. There's there's a lot of different directions. So let's just jump into it. I think first of all, the chef and I have to assume his sycophant sous chefs, yeah. they are all yeah. they hold a deep loathing for their customer base, which is very rich very used to getting their way and very into exclusivity and highbrow everything. And I, I think one of the things it's revealed later on by the chef, one of the reasons he loathes them, he says something to the effect of you have ruined my craft. You, you've ruined my art. And I, th I think what he was getting at is that their, their nitpickiness their demand for excellence and something new, something exciting. It it pushed food into a level of art that, okay, it could be seen as art, but it could also be seen as absurd. You know, like flavored foam, for example. I've seen shows where it's it's part of the thing. And I just think, yeah, flavored foam? <laughs> I'd be pissed <laughs> off if I paid five, 500 bucks or something for a plate of friggin' foam. <laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous. This is where the world of the culinary arts and abstract art, yeah, it's so decadent and over the top and yeah. ridiculous. When we were living in England, there was a chef who had his own show and he would do outrageous, weird creations like this, like floating foam and things. And his name was Heston Blumenthal. Can't miss him. He's got really cool glasses and a shaved head 
And he's a super nice British guy. He's not like Gordon Ramsay, but he will make some of these things that nobody ever asked for, nobody ever conjured or imagined. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a part of me as an observer when I watch this, or I'm aware of the Food Network and all these cooking shows and Iron Chef and all these things, and I'm sitting here going, we have people starving to death. We have people homeless in America right now, sleeping in the streets, sleeping in cardboard boxes, and yet we're going to make a meal and charge 500 to 1000 a plate. What's wrong with our society? Is this the most important thing that we need to yeah. be doing? This definitely lays bare that disparity in the haves and yeah. have-nots of the world. And not to say that the chef and his team are have-nots, but it, it seems that they've right. just grown tired of catering to and serving this high-demand high expectations group of people that have all the money in the world, yeah. but they just are never satisfied with what they have, no matter what it is. And they're always looking for that new thing. Have you ever waited tables? I never have. I, I, I worked at McDonald's after high school and that's about all the food service I did. And I was in KP often in uh, basic training. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. And that's a different world altogether. Yeah. Totally. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I waited tables at a an Olive Garden in Provo, Utah. Ooh, fancy stuff. Yeah, just let that sink in. <laughs> um, and once a year, and I think Olive Garden still has it, once a year they will have $5. I'm sure they've increased the price $10 yeah. by now. But for $5, you could pay $5. This, this dates me. This was in the 90s. You could pay $5 and you could have as much soup and salad as you wanted. Okay. Endless. And... When we, we would do this, I think for like a week, one week a year, we would do this. And a lot of our customers that were paying $20, $30 a plate would come in and have a lunch with their girlfriends. And I got to tell you that how demanding and nitpicky they were. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there was a lot of my coworkers who were also, you know, waiters and stuff. We would talk so much trash about our customers <laughs> at our table back in the kitchen. I mean, we had nicknames for these people. There was code words for these people. Hey, I've got a, a, a you know what on table five in my section. And then we'd open up the, the kitchen window doors and look out and like, yeah, you nailed it. You know, so there were there were all these kind of I don't know, I, I guess taken to extremes, but uh, in the menu, obviously. But there is a certain contempt because you bend over backwards trying to give these people excellence. And there's a feeling that None of them will ever fully appreciate the training, professionalism, the work, the worry, the meticulousness mm -hmm. that go into crafting these dishes. You're creating combinations of food and textures that have never, ever existed in human history. And you're giving it to these people, and they could not care less. At the Olive Garden? No, no, no. I'm talking about the movie now. Uh, but yeah, I guess to a, to a lesser extent. Just yeah, to clarify. I mean, no, that's true. I, I would, can you imagine me referring to my work, The Olive Garden, as on par with what we see in the menu? Well, oh, yes, the tour of Italy. <laughs> the fettuccine Alfredo, man. I mean, it was right. Uh, it, it could have been served in the movie, the menu, for sure. Absolutely. Breadsticks, well, for sure, at least. I want to I want to touch on something though. You you inadvertently brought sure. something up that I think is an interesting parallel. Assholery knows no yeah. bounds. It could be in the lower socioeconomic class, and it can be in the the very top peak of socially socioeconomic classes. And I think we see this in healthcare. We see this in food service. We see this in really any sort of service 
industry where people who are broke ass students or have a million kids and, and can barely afford anything, if people go out for dinner or if they're spending money on something, they want to get as much out of their money as they can from a poor person's perspective. That's probably some of the people that you see at the $5 soup day, you know, gimme, 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 keep, keep bringing that soup, keep bringing that soup, being kind of bossy or whiny if it doesn't come out on time or whatever. But then you look at the rich side as portrayed in this movie, they just feel like they deserve what is best, what is new, what is exceptional because they are who they are and they have the kind of money and the lifestyle that that's, that's what they demand. So it is, it is interesting that you can see assholery knows no bounds. It, it exists across all, True. all social <laughs> areas. So I got to admit, I don't have a good grasp on this film. I really don't. It, it kind of boggles me. I yeah. don't fully really understand like what, <laughs> what are they going for here? other than to pick uh, pick apart the rich and the entitled but why what, that's my question why right. what do you think why why are they telling this story well i i think i mean the impression i got and which is why i put some of this in my review is that this was this was judgment day mm-hmm. and we may we may find the judge jury and executioners meaning chef slowick you know ray fines and his sous chefs um, imperfect judges, but nevertheless, all those people were there to be judged. They had all been um, heavily uh, researched by the chef and his sous chefs. Um, he, everyone that was there, was guilty in some way or another of uh, of offending either the chef directly or the the, the culinary arts mm-hmm. that he's involved in. Um, but he also, to be fair, he also found himself guilty as right. well. And wasn't afraid to say, you know, I'm not perfect either. I'm an mm-hmm. imperfect judge here. Um, the reason I think that he was very uncomfortable with Anya Taylor-Joy's Margot is because I think he was conflicted morally because he didn't know who she was. She hadn't done anything yeah. to deserve what was going to happen to the rest of the guests. Yep. So he was conflicted. Um, so I, I felt like this was um, Judgment Day for some wicked people and we can we can debate does john leguizamo's washed up movie star character deserve to die because he made a bad film that annoyed the chef no (laughs) i don't think he does but no he kind of sounds like a douchebag that doesn't mean he deserves to be killed Um, no i I don't think really i don't think any of those people deserve to be killed Uh, yeah the chef his his sous chefs uh nobody there deserved to be killed but somehow he had gotten a, com- a god complex, which I have heard that chefs are incredibly arrogant. Some of them, they can become so arrogant and so full of themselves because they're used to being obeyed, praised, and adored in some ways. So that they can gain this god complex, which this chef certainly shows elements yeah. of that going on where he can literally judge and execute a whole dining room full of people yeah when i was watching the film and i referenced it in my review i said this reminds me of christopher lee's lord summer isle in the movie the wicker man Mm -hmm. and it's okay if you haven't seen the wicker man it was um uh, uh, you know it's a it's an old film made in the 70s uh about and and i'm going to spoil the wicker man for you it's about an island also an island full of cultists 
<laughs> who worship the sun and the solstice and believe in human sacrifice and animal sacrifice. And they're not a Christian society. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, the wicker man, I'm not going to re- ruin it completely for you, but you absolutely should see the okay. wicker man. It is a classic horror film note. from the seventies starring the late Edward Woodward and the late, of course, Christopher Lee. It is a brilliant original film. My wife and I rented it when we were not long after we were married, we rented it from blockbuster back when blockbuster was still around. I don't even know why I rented yeah. it. Because I normally wouldn't rent an old horror film from the 70s. But I brought it home. I must have heard about it from someone else. I brought it home. We watched it. This is before cell phones were a thing. And so we actually watched it, watched it. Mm-hmm. And we both loved it. Okay. I but it's creepy. It. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's creepy. So I feel like I can't tell everybody. Run out and see it. But it's creepy, but it's good. And they remade it with Nicolas Cage. And, and, and Nicolas Cage ruined it, of course. But anyway, The Wicker Man. And it's about an island full of people who are devoted to this um, kind of cult-like leader re- played by Christopher Lee. And, and that's kind of this, what re- this movie, The Menu, reminded me of. You've got an island full of um, kind of cult-like sous chefs that mm-hmm. are devoted to the vision and the edicts and orders of Ray Fiennes' chef. And the people that come to that island are there to be judged, it seems. I think it's, it's very dark humor as well. Very. Because even... The very, I mean, some of the some of the dishes that are served are kind of funny. Well, the mess that was shocking. That was a very poignant scene. I think again, spoiler alert. One of the one of the courses yep. is called the mess, and each course has a name. It's they're all named and described in detail. Yeah, and the mess is is one sous chef is brought forth onto a, a white sheet that has been laid out on the floor, and the chef introduces this man. And kind of ask him some questions about his life. Are you are you proud of yourself? Something something to the effect of Are you pleased with who you are? Do you think you'll ever amount to anything? And the sous chef is clear that he doesn't think he'll ever achieve greatness, and so he shoots himself right in the head with a gun right there in the dining room in front of everybody. The man has clearly yeah. blown his brains out. Falls onto the ground is wrapped up and taken away and people are freaking out rightfully so but you see a right. stratification of the reactions some people are justifiably freaked the fuck out they they just witnessed yeah. a suicide right in front of them violent and terrifying other people are like oh no no this is part of the show you guys this is this is just theatrics mm-hmm. this is just just go with it well, it'll make sense more later and then others the nerd face foodie that brings Margot, yeah. he's like, oh, uh, wow, yeah, don't worry about it. This is this is really interesting. So hmm, I wonder what we're going to be eating next. And just completely unbothered by this scene. And we find out later why he was unbothered. He knew what was going on yeah. all along. But yeah, I think sometimes before I knew that he knew what was going on, I was thinking sometimes when we have the evidence right in front of us, we still see what we want to see. We can rationalize and justify. We can face it with eyes towards reality, with horror, if you know, if, if it's yeah. something that we need to be uh, really concerned about. Or we can just nonchalantly go about our day and eat our foam and just assume everything's okay. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> no, it's you're right. We call that cognitive dissonance, right? right? Or rationalize reasoning. And yeah, we can, we can see the evidence right 
right there Mm -hmm. and just go Mm -hmm. shrug and just carry on. Yep. You know, and I talk about a lot of things (laughs) where I'm like, Hey, this expose just revealed that that kind of blows your whole world apart. What do you think about that? And they go, yeah. And they just, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Yep. I'm, that's not important to me. Yep. I know what I believe. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, all right. You, you, um, you don't want to take the blue pill or the red pill or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, ignorance is bliss. Carry on. You know, if it, if you're happy and it doesn't hurt anybody else, believe what you want, I guess. That's it. Have, have a nice life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you could, you could look at the, at the larger or wider meanings of the menu. And I think it's, I think it's making fun of society. Yeah. I think it's making fun of, I think it's poking fun, as you said, at the assholery of, of our society and the different people that are within those, um, uh, the different stratas of society, the ultra rich people who are more interested in taking pictures of their food rather than actually eating it. You know, people who are more interested in saying, let me, let me check in on Facebook and update my location. So people know where I am. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm People who would be clinically depressed if someone stole their camera on their vacation and all the photos that they took could not be uploaded and shown to the world so they could show off. Because it didn't really happen if you don't take pictures. (laughs) Exactly. And I remember we were, my wife and I were at the Grand Canyon and we were looking at some beautiful scenery and we looked over, I looked over rather, and there was a couple and they were looking at the scenery through their phone. And I'm like, it's right there. Yeah. It's yeah. right there. Why are you looking through your phone at the scenery? They didn't care about the scenery. They were there to record it, to upload it to social media. I'm like, it's right there. Use your real eyes. I think I can speak to that sometimes. I, I'm guilty of that. There, most of the time, I forget to take pictures of whatever event I'm at yeah. unless I really want somebody to see what I'm seeing. Like I I go, I went to a concert call, uh, of a band called Odessa, which was truly right. a mind-altering life-changing experience for me for a lot of reasons that I can't go into here. But Heidi couldn't go because her foot was, she had just had surgery. And so all during the thing, I was taking video and sending it to her because I wanted so badly for her to be there. I wanted her to experience it. So I think sometimes, sometimes when we take pictures of our food or take pictures of the Grand Canyon or of a concert, I do think really we just want to share it with people because we're so impressed or overwhelmed with the beauty or the 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 spectacular scene that we're seeing but they're definitely i've i'm guilty of it i have also taken pictures and video of things because i want people to see that this is what i'm up to and you know we can't we can't really decipher who's doing what for what reason unless you're doing some bullshit tiktok dance out in public blocking traffic or making a scene or whatever we know what that's about i think it's just a good good thing to once in a while check ourselves to see you know are we actually enjoying whatever it is that's right before us like you said like dude right we're on the we're on the edge of one of the greatest natural formations in the world and you want to look at it through your phone that is silly that it is it's silly it it is presumptuous of me of course to assume that at no other point that the only reason they were doing it was to upload it to social media yeah. and not really experience it firsthand no i i get that and and you know what um i take pictures of my food yeah i do too i sometimes do i take pictures of my food I take pictures of or short videos of where I've been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that anybody that does is not fully embracing or enjoying the the experience. Um, and you're right. There is some things that you want to share. I, I look at 
Instagram or some social media sites as, as memory scrap scrapbooks there mm-hmm. um, for me and my family. Yeah. And, and what's great is that Google has this great feature. Um, if you have their Google uh, photo app, it'll say one year ago today, and it'll show you like a little montage or a collage of things you were doing. And I'm like, man, my kids are growing up so fast. Look at them just one year ago, you know? And so I, yeah. I appreciate those kind of yeah. trips down memory lane that they do and, and they only do it because I take photos yeah. of my memories of my activity. I think the menu is trying to say several things. I don't think any of them are very nice to to wealthy people. I don't want to give away the very very ending of the film. No, I don't. I don't think we should. Maybe we should hold back. But yeah. um, I I do like what what Margot does to that chef. Oh yeah, she she dissects him. Total total turn of tables and totally took yes. him out of the power position. That was. Yes. That was pretty awesome. That was badass. Yeah, that was really kick-ass. And I, I really took him, yeah, just completely deconstructed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of want to leave a little bit so that if you haven't seen the menu and we haven't completely spoiled it for you, um, check it out. I, I thought the menu was one of the one of the better films I saw last year. Wouldn't have made my top five, but I might have had to argue for it to be within my top 10. I don't know. It was pretty good. I think... The the big takeaway theme or message that I got from it is the importance of gratitude and satisfaction. Be just be grateful right. for what we have, and that's not to say don't keep uh, growing, don't keep building, but to be grateful for whatever it is we have at every step, and be grateful towards the people who help us achieve or gain the experiences and the whatever it is we're chasing, the people that help us get there and obtain those things, whether it's the staff at a restaurant or it's a tour guide when we're overseas for the first time or the nursing staff that makes your colonoscopy endurable. Anybody, really, just think of any service person, anybody that has helped us along the way to get where we are, our parents, good friends, uh, even our worst enemy that helped motivate us to be better and prove them wrong, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. I I think gratitude is a big takeaway for me. Now, this is a take it or leave it movie for me. So I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I need this in my life. To me, it's not so good that I have to recommend it to everybody. So I guess that's where we differ. I didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it, but it wasn't like, right. Damn. Everybody should be seeing that movie. I just didn't. I didn't get that. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, it's brutal. Um, it it's is. a brutal film to sit through. Yeah. Um, it's a brutal film to sit through and it's hard. I, I felt like I needed to put a horror film in my proverbial top 10. I needed yeah. to put something that was from the, from the horror, but, but also was kind of a psychological horror. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and was written cleverly. And I thought the dishes, the names of the dishes and their meanings were, were clever and, mm-hmm. I just really like Rafe Fiennes. He's such a great actor, and he is very good. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. This this dish is not for everyone's liking. <laughs> <laughs> we have options. Lots so, of options. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can order something else from the menu. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> All right. Should we jump into you people? Yeah. Let's jump into you people. Um, I'll let you take it. Okay. So you people, it just. I think it just debuted on on Netflix last week, maybe a couple weeks ago. Yes. Uh, very fresh, very new. Starring Jonah Hill as Ezra and Lauren London as Amira. 
Plus, it has Eddie Murphy as Amira's father and Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Jonah Hill's mother. So the dynamic here is you have these two these two adults, Jonah Hill, Lauren London. They're just people in the world, living their life, looking for love, looking for connection. They both have their careers, they have their passions and their and their focus, but they are both missing, they're lacking love. And right. they come from very strong religious families. Jonah Hill is from a Jewish family. He's not fully practicing, but he's also not uh, he's not fully left Judaism. Lauren London comes from an American Islam family or American Muslim. So this is a nation of Islam rather than traditional Middle Eastern. Okay, so there, yeah, there is a difference. So both families, though the parents anyway, are very devoted to their their faith, and it clashes. Oh, I should also mention because it is absolutely a, a vital part of the of the film. Jonah Hill, he's a white he's a white guy. His family is white, and Lauren London and his and her family are all uh, African American. So you have this combination of differences, the religion and the race, that comes in to play in very very in a very big way. And the story is basically these two people connecting on a deep level. They happen to meet on accident. They connect very quickly on a very deep level. They click immediately. They love each other very quickly and decide they want to get married. But all emotional hell breaks loose once they start getting their families together. So it's like while they're just dating and falling in love, they're living in a vacuum almost because they haven't introduced the the mayhem that is coming into their lives by getting their families together. And that's where that's where the conflict comes. That's where it all begins. <laughs> that first dinner right. with the families together getting to know each other. <laughs> Man, what what did you think, Joe? What what did you think about this film? Yeah, I I um I thought the film was a brave film mm-hmm. with brave subjects, and you know if you're looking at it going, oh, it's a rom com, nah, eh, not really into rom coms. So well, hang on a minute, this is a rom com with level ten difficulty. Yeah, because like like you said, I mean, this is a rom com. This isn't something on the Hallmark Channel. This is something about you know Jonah Hill, like you said, is is it is a white Jewish person of affluence. Mm-hmm. Um, the person he falls in love with, of course, is, uh, uh, what's her name? London last, I can't remember her first name. Uh, um, I've Laura, never seen her in anything Lauren else. London. Lauren London. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren London is like you said, um, black and Muslim, um, right. Muslims and Jews. I mean, come on, the Muslims and the Jews have been hating each other for over a thousand years. Yep. Um, uh, we're not going to solve the Palestinian issue no. in America with the marriage of these two people. And it doesn't seem like the like the main leads really care all that much about those religious differences. It's what the family's um, expectations of them are. And I felt that uh, Julia Louis, Louis Dreyfus's character as, as Joni Hill's mom, she's mm-hmm. hilarious, by the way. She did a great um, job. She, she had nothing but foot and mouth disease so the whole often, movie. She every just kept, single day. Every... She kept saying the wrong thing. Yes. And not on purpose, but it was just, 
<sighs> yeah. And I, I, I'm like, it was cringe. You'd watch it. And, and then I would go, you know what? I've heard cringier things <laughs> from my extended family at yeah. get, get togethers and things. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've heard cringy things like that. And then I thought to a couple instances, like, you know what? I have had foot and mouth disease before. I've said the wrong thing. I have too. Um, I said the wrong thing once to your son. Uh, really? You had a son that was working. Yeah. I went to go pick up some food at Taco Bell and your son took our order and your oldest son. Yeah. Um, and I uh, got to talking with him and I just, I, 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 I don't know. I said some, just, I'd never said it with offense and I don't think he took offense, but I was, I drove away embarrassed. I was like, I kept, every time I kept trying to like say the right thing, I made it worse and worse and worse and worse. And eventually I just kind of drove away, slunked under the steering wheel. Well, now I have to know, what'd you say to him? (laughs) Oh, um, so I'm terrible with names. I'm terrible with names, but your, um, second oldest son had, um, was on a mission. Brandon was on a mission and your oldest son was not, he didn't choose to go, which is totally fine of course course. and now that i know more about him i understand why yeah no biggie right none of my business but of course i'm i pull up and go oh hey hey isn't your brother on a mission i'm trying to make small talk while he gets (laughs) their food yeah yeah he is and then i'm like isn't he your younger brother oh (laughs) yeah yes yes he is so are you thinking about going on a mission i don't know not really i mean you know (laughs) Like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure he's having a great experience. And and my wife at that point was looking at me going, what are you doing? Shut up. Shut up. All of this is none of your business. He probably doesn't want to talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, just like in the movie. So I was like, well, anyway, it was nice seeing you. That was the one and only time I ever spoke or interacted with your son. And I drove away. I didn't even get out of the parking lot before I'm like, I'm an idiot. Everything about that went wrong. I didn't mean to be intrusive. I didn't mean to like barge in on his privacy. And of course, I'm sure he's aware that it's his younger brother is on a mission. And the expectation <laughs> in the Mormon faith is that is that you go on a mission when you're of age and he's not on a mission and he's of age. And, and you know, and I'm, now I have a son who's of right. age and he isn't going to go on a mission. And mm-hmm. it just makes me feel even worse. I wish I could go back and delete that with your well. son. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's either been forgotten and or forgiven, so don't worry about it. Okay. But okay. I'll pass along just, your I, uh, apology. Okay, <laughs> Caleb, if you're listening like to this, Joe That's apologizes, right, Caleb, okay? Yeah. Caleb, I, I apologize. I, uh, I Foot and mouth disease all through that parking lot. And when I was watching Julie, no, when I was watching Julie, Julie Louis-Dreyfus' character as the mom, trying to be welcoming and trying to be accommodating mm-hmm. and trying... And, um, you know, black lives matter to us too. And, um, you know, yeah. I, oh, I'm, I'm so, you know, and just tokenism and yes. And, um, I, you know, you, you belong and you have a place here and black lives matter to us as well, even though we're Jewish and we're, <laughs> and, uh, we, we, you know, go Barack. And, um, it was just cringe. It was cringe. I she think, was so earnest. She was trying, but it was so bad. Well, I think sometimes when we're, when we don't know what to say, but we want to convey, okay, so let's just, let's just be open race relations in america i thought that they were getting good and i'm not a black guy okay i don't know what it's like to be a black person in america i have no no fucking clue i just i don't know um right so does racism exist absolutely every single day of our lives but i have not witnessed that i've not well i've witnessed racism i've I've definitely seen that not towards me obviously because i'm as white as they come, but uh, 
race is a very hot topic, especially during the COVID period. We had uh, Black Lives Matter rise up. We've had so many killings of black people, typically black young men. Whether they were criminals or engaged in criminality or not at the time doesn't matter at all. It was overkill, literally. And so with that climate in America, I as a white guy, I understand that mother's need and desire to convey uh, acceptance and love. But the problem is I've, we do ha- we, we have some black friends and they, we've talked openly about this, about the Black Lives Matter. And they said it, it brought a lot of attention to them to where they'll be at the grocery store and people will just say, yeah, Black Lives Matter. We're here with you. You know, white people saying that to, to them. And what they told us is we don't want to be treated special. We just want to be treated like everybody else. We just don't want anything special. We just want to be like everybody else. And so what what her character was guilty of, overly awkward gushing of support and love to the point where it didn't feel genuine. It felt like, I don't know what the word is, but it was it was just incredibly awkward because she was trying so hard to prove that she was an accepting, loving person to all people that she came off as almost creepy. It just came off wrong yeah. all the way around. And yeah. I, th- I do think sometimes we can do that. You know, like in the Mormon church, sometimes, you know, somebody doesn't believe the way the, you know, the leaders teach or, you know, somebody that's not fully believing or fully practicing, you know, I have witnessed it in myself as someone who's left that, uh, oh, we love you anyway. Well, love you anyway. Um, hmm. Anyway, if, wild. You know, yeah. like, or if, if uh, you know, the family, and I've seen this too, the family that has a gay son or a gay daughter. Oh, you know, we, we don't accept the lifestyle. We don't, we don't uh, agree with the lifestyle, but we love her anyway. We love him anyway. You know, that's not real love. And I think people need to check themselves. Sometimes we have prejudices that maybe we're not aware of. And I think one of the prejudices that white people sometimes have is they are so worried about proving to people of color that they are not a racist, that they almost come off as a racist because they're putting so much emphasis on the difference of skin color. So right. quit being awkward, just talk to them like you would anybody else. And that proves enough. Right. You don't have to go to these ridiculous right. lengths. That's absolutely right. I had a grandfather um, who was a paraplegic from the age of 12 uh, from polio. My grandmother remarried a guy back in the 60s, and that was my grandpa Dave. And he did not like being called handicapped. Like he was, it like offended him. He didn't like being called handicapped. He was aware he was handicapped. Sure. He didn't like you calling him handicapped because he was handy able. Okay. And this is before political correctness and any of that. He just didn't like being, he didn't like being pigeonholed into this category of these people. We can look down on them. We can feel sorry for these people. These people can't do things. You know, my grandpa Dave um, mounted a, um, a gas and brake pedal onto a steering column. And even though he didn't have any feeling from his waist down, he had like a motorcycle steering column inside his Cadillac and he would drive that thing all wow. over town. And he became a certified public accountant. He had his own accounting office and um, wow. he ran marathons. I say ran, but he would he would do marathons for charity, for, for MS, multiple oh, yeah. sclerosis or anything. 
Um, he was in a he was in a paraplegic uh, basketball league. Um, he had his forearms or tree trunks. No, you weren't going to call him handicapped. He was handy able. People who were feeling sorry for him, he hated that, and he never complained about his health ever, ever. Like not once ever did I hear my grandpa Dave ever complain about hmm. what he could or could not do. That's and cool. I, I love that about him. I always refer to my grandpa Dave as John Wayne in a wheelchair. He was 100% a bad ass and he was a man's man. And um, I love that about him, but he did not like people fawning over him yeah. or we, we were with you or we support the paraplegic right. or the handicapped or he didn't like that. He just wanted to be treated the same as everyone else. And those who knew him best and loved him best did just that. And he loved you back. And that's what, that's all you wanted. Yeah. And, and there's a difference between just basic kindness and pity, isn't there? Pity. Yes. Who wants that? Other than people who are into theatrics, most people don't want to be pitied. Yeah. I think we just want connection. We want kindness in our, in our lives with, with the people that we engage with. So this, this film, it lays that one open. Just treat people like people. You don't have to try so hard. Yeah. But then on the other side, you have the the very suspicious black father who's very uh, he feels it's his duty to guard his daughter's happiness, and basically what he what he conveys is that he doesn't trust Jonah's Jonah's character, and he doesn't even trust his mm -hmm. daughter to make a good decision for herself. So he goes to elaborate lengths to prove to himself that this guy is no good for his daughter and shouldn't be trusted, to the point where he he sees what he wants to see in this man and ends up breaking up the, the engagement. So they don't get married because both of them, their families are just too much. They're just too in the way of their relationship. And it just causes too much drama, too much heartache. And they end up, they end up breaking up and it's, it was really sad. Now I want to ask you, what did you think about the the chemistry on on screen that you saw between uh, the two main characters? What what did you feel from that? Did it seem genuine to you? Did it seem real? That's my only criticism of the movie. It's a well intentioned movie. Mm -hmm. Jonah Hill wrote it, produced it, acted in it. He did everything except direct it. Mm -hmm. That's my only one criticism. I think is that the chemistry between the two leads. I don't know. Uh, you know, when I think of good chemistry between two romantic leads, I think Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, fantastic yeah. chemistry. Bogart and Bacall, mm -hmm. fantastic chemistry. Um, you know, uh, 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 George Clooney, J uh, Julia Roberts, right. fantastic chemistry. Um, you know, um, so when I saw these two leads, they were written well. And the, and the screenplay is fantastic. So Jonah Hill deserves kudos for that. And the subject matter is brilliant. But mm -hmm. in terms of like their actual actor to actor chemistry, eh, I don't know. Wasn't really doing it for me. Okay, that's fair. That, I, for me, that's yeah. me being honest. There yeah. were moments where I, I could see that, but there were other moments where I was like, yeah, that's, it, it felt genuine to me. So I've read online. I don't normally okay. read reviews, but this was just a Reddit post that I happened to scroll yeah. passed at 2 a.m. while I was lying in bed trying to fall asleep and I couldn't but uh <laughs> these people were just ripping the the lack of chemistry so looking back on it oh they oh, were yeah that, I haven't read reviews that either. was a common 
a common thread. Okay. People just didn't like the, the chemistry. And I, I don't fully disagree, but I also don't fully agree with that. I think there were, there were moments. But one thing okay. that I found frustrating with the film is just how hard everybody tried. The, the mother, she tried so hard to make herself seem up with the times and accepting and loving and all this stuff that she, she portrayed someone who only sees race. And then the father, Eddie Murphy's character, he was so suspicious of Jonah Hill as a white person, as a white Jew, that he went to great lengths to prove that he was no good. But then also Jonah Hill's character, he lied all the time. He tried to pretend that he was connected and in well-informed in black culture in America and that he did or did not do certain things that maybe the father would would either approve of or disapprove of. And so it was it was weird mm-hmm. seeing, seeing him squirm and be clearly intimidated by the father figure in this in this film to the point where he would he would say little white lies and sometimes whoppers that would just I if I was that father I would question this guy's character like who who are you actually why are you why are you lying like this and he would he would actually mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. lie to his fiance about little things to make kind of to smooth over all this yeah racial and and cultural difference so that that made me uncomfortable it was, it was like dude just be yourself and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out but at least no one can call you a liar yeah uh, that was strange to me I think the only character that was truly herself, the only person that was really herself was the yeah. Lauren London's character. She didn't pretend to be anything and she didn't put on air. She didn't put up fronts and she was just herself and she was delightful. So, yeah, I think, I think you're, I think you're right there as well. I, I think a lot of the problems that Joni Hill's character uh, had were self-generating, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. he just, you know, made problems bigger and bigger for himself. I think also he just wanted he just wanted to be approved. Yeah. He just wanted, he wanted the approval. This is a different, different kind of movie role for Eddie Murphy that I'm used to. Yeah. He, I usually like Eddie Murphy. He was an asshole in this one. Yeah. He was a total jerk. He was. Uh, reminded me a little bit of Robert De Niro's character yes. in Meet the Parents. And that's a frustrating um, movie too. But you know, with Robert De Niro, you're like, well, I, I expect that from Robert De Niro for him to be kind of a jerk, uh, intimidating jerk. But Eddie Murphy is more of like the, he's the comic relief mm-hmm. guy. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to do different things with his acting career, but they're, I don't know what he's going to do. It looks like he's making, they're making another Beverly Hills cop, okay. another That'd one. That'd be fun. <laughs> so he's going back to his comedy roots, I guess. But th- th- one of the co-stars, uh, Jonah Hill's best friend in the movie, I uh, can't remember his name, Good, pretty well known. Uh, the best man, oh, what's his name? Oh, he, ha- he has a show on Netflix. Um, he's a comedian, stand-up oh, comedian. Andrew, um, was it Andrew? He gave an interview where he said, he gave an interview that recently that said, the kiss that they have at the very end between Jonah Hill and Lauren mm-hmm. London. He says that's CGI. Yeah. I've read that too. That's what a weird thing that is. Yeah. Like I'm like, now was that done because the main shoot had ended and both actors were committed and busy and they needed to get this film out and they needed to do reshoot shoots and people weren't available or was the chemistry <laughs> that bad that they had to CGI the romantic kiss at mm-hmm. the end? I don't, I don't know. know. I read the internet. I'm sure there's rumors. a good explanation. Yeah, they they just didn't like each other. Yeah, uh, as individuals, as actors. Oh, really? Yeah, I read that. 
whether that's yeah. true, who knows, yeah. man? There's there's so many rumors about everything. So yeah. I don't take that too seriously. Yeah, I like what this film was trying to do. I like what it was trying mm-hmm. to do. I like that it was having the conversation of, hey, look, there are ways to put our differences aside. Mm-hmm. There are ways to build bridges, bridges across cultural divides or religious divides. There, There is a way to do this. And if, and if we will just try it, and if we will stop being hopeless, and if we will just stop as a society saying we are only going to include people in our circle of friends or our social bubble that think like we do, believe like we do, and live like we yeah. do, you know, that's tribalism, and that's dangerous and corrosive to a society and a country. And our culture, and an American culture, that's what's pulling us apart. Mm-hmm. And we need to find ways to come together. We need to find ways to say, I celebrate and respect the differences you have with me, your cultural, sexual, religious differences that you have with me. And we can still be friends. We can still find common ground. We can still be friends. And so I liked what the film was trying to do for those reasons. And I, I mean, I overall, I liked it. You know, and I think it's important to remember that all of us are, quote unquote, you people to somebody. There's somebody that doesn't like us because of the way we look, the way we act, how we speak, where we live, whatever. So I think it's important to remember that and try to be a force for becoming us people rather than looking for ways to divide or see division. We need to find ways to actually come together to build bridges between our cultural, religious, or sexual divides and there are ways to do this. And I like that this film was saying there is a way to do it. There's a way to have civil discussions. There's a way to be, to act respectfully to each other in spite of our differences. And in some cases, there are ways to fall in love with someone with major differences than you yeah. and still be together. I mean, there's, there's, there's a way to do it. And so I, the film was, was a brave project yeah. that said it can happen. It can happen. Be believing. It can happen. And I just think overall that when we, and I have, I have, I know too many people, family, friends, extended, they only want to be friends with people that golf like they do <laughs> and are white. And I don't, I'm not saying they're racists, but they don't run into people of color who golf and think the way they do too, mm-hmm. the way they do too. And they don't run into people that listen to country music and golf, or they don't run into people that go shooting, you yeah. know, that are people of color and go hunting and stuff. And so, you know, I'm not saying you're racist for doing that. I'm really not. But I'm saying that sometimes we kind of limit our our relationship choices or friendship choices. And pretty soon we surround ourselves with an echo chamber, a cultural echo chamber True. of people who think and worship and believe the way and vote the way we yeah. do, because that feels safe to some yeah, of us. Comfortable. This film is trying to say, yeah, stop being so comfortable. Let's get out of our bubbles and let's Let's stretch out a little bit. You might find somebody that fascinates you and blows you away. Anyway, I'll shut up. No, I've, well I've said. Well said. Now. <laughs> that, that, I think that perfectly yeah. sums it up. And I would totally recommend this movie. I, I really enjoyed it. There, We've talked about the criticism that we have with it, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, an important topic to, to portray, and I think they did it in a, in a fun and as lighthearted way as they could, but as serious and direct as needed to be to get the point across. So it's, it's one of those films that it's not your typical rom-com. It's, it'll make you think it'll make you uh, question. Well, it made me question myself. Like, am I guilty of underlying prejudice? Am I 
like you said, you know, am I putting myself in a silo and, and only keeping people around me who believe and think the same way that I do? And absolutely, I'm guilty of that. I, I wholeheartedly admit that. It's it's more comfortable. It's safe. But I think you're right, Joe. It's uh, That is what creates division, like continued division in America, especially when we see it, like that tribalism that you mentioned, when we stop recognizing other humans as truly human, just like ourselves, for any reason, whether it's race, sexual orientation, religion, hobbies, where they live, whatever it is, we risk elevating, trying to elevate ourselves when we don't deserve it. And we also limit our ability to really experience other people and cultures in, in a way that, that would otherwise have enriched our life. And now, is that comfortable? It's not comfortable to be challenged. It's not. But that's where growth happens. And I think it's a necessary part of life if we're going to really live. That's so well said. I, I, I also think as fathers, you and me, we have kids and our influence is still there with our kids. Mm-hmm. And I want my kids to grow up at least observing that their dad or mom were welcoming and inviting yeah. and, and, um, and, and inclusive with, with the friends and associations they made because I want our society and our world to be more welcoming mm-hmm. and inclusive. And if you do too, maybe the first thing you do is start in your home. Yeah. Yeah. So that when your kids grow up, they will take that influence and that example and spread it to their families. And then it grows and grows. And then we have a more welcoming, inclusive society that's loving and supportive. Totally agree. Rather than one that uh, virtue signals. Yeah. Virtue signals for, for, for personal reasons. We don't want that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's all I had to say about both of those films. I think we covered it. Until next time, everybody, thanks for being here with us. Later. Later. Later.